Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tortoise. Hello, welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. Over the course of this year, as we head towards a general election, we're going to look at some of the big policy challenges and questions facing the next government. And to kick things off, we're going to start off with a big, important and expensive subject, welfare. So first, we should define our terms. So what do we mean when we talk about welfare? Well, normally, any discussion of welfare begins with the creation of the welfare state and Beveridge, who identified his five evils, idleness, ignorance, disease, squalor and want. Normally, when we talk about welfare in policy terms now, we're really talking about three of those evils idleness, squalor and want. In other words, what do we do to help people who are unemployed or in work and low pay? What do we do to help people who are retired, those who can't afford their rent, those who can't work because they're unwell? Uh, It's helping people who otherwise couldn't afford to live and not the health service, which we'll come to in a future episode. So John, why don't you start us off with our first couple of numbers? So the first couple of numbers we're going to think about are £257 billion and 53%. Now, the first of those figures, £257 billion, is the total amount that the UK government spent on Social Security um, in the last full financial year, at least according to the Office of Budget Responsibility. Just over half of that total, by the way, is on pensions. And the total well, Social Security bill represents around a quarter of all UK government spending. It's even more than we spend on health. Um, that second number, 53%, is the proportion of UK households who receive some form of welfare payment from the government. So slightly over a half of us get some money for the gov- from the government under one of these various headings. Now, John... 
I referenced Beveridge at the beginning, which was obviously the 1940s, but we're going to spend most of this episode looking at what's happened in the last couple of decades mm-hmm. uh, since the um, end of the Thatcher and Major government and uh, Tony Blair came into power. So how have those numbers changed in that period? Well, they've changed in every quite considerably. Um, so if we take 1997, 1998, uh, Labour's first full year, uh, we spent just under £100 billion a year on Social Security. Uh, By the time New Labour had vacated office, it had more than doubled to just over £200 billion. So there was quite a substantial increase under New Labour, which we all doubtless want to come back to and unpack a bit. The increase since then, however, um, under the years of uh, Conservative government, has been slower. And indeed, in real terms, spending on welfare is about 10% less now than it was uh, back in 2011-2012. And indeed, uh, the proportion of UK spending represented by Social Security has fallen from around 30% at that point to the 25% now. In this podcast, we're going to do two things. Um, As Rachel's already mentioned, we're going to focus on the period since 1997 when New Labour came to power. And we're going to look at the pattern of welfare spending in the UK, what policy has been, how it's changed over time, and also how it compares with the position in other countries. Um, And we'll also look to see at how welfare spending has changed as a result of social changes inside the UK. So the first bit's going to be about policy and spending. And then in the second half, we will look at how public attitudes have evolved and changed in response uh, to the changes we'll talk about in the first half. And to help us to make sense of all this, we're joined by a real expert on the subject, Dr. Robert DeVries, who's a senior lecturer in sociology and social policy at the University of Kent. Robert, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Thanks, John. Um, Yep, so my main research area when it comes to social policy is welfare attitudes. So why people feel the way they feel about welfare benefit claimants and the welfare benefit system um, in general. Okay, so let's start a discussion about the uh, about the various forms of uh, welfare spending. And we said we'd start off with spending on the unemployed. So what's happened to policy in uh, so far as um, providing support for the unemployed and how's the pattern of spending panned out? So I think one of the things we're going to try and keep coming back to in this episode is there are two reasons, core reasons, why policy changes. The first is that the makeup of the population itself changed. And there have been some big, big transformations over the last few decades in work, in the demography of the population that has changed how we spend money and why we spent money. And the second are deliberate decisions by the government of the day. So if we're talking about unemployment and in work, why don't I talk briefly about some of the changes in the population and then Robert can talk about how policy has changed. And there have been two big changes over the last few decades. The first is the ever increasing participation in work by women. So over time, fewer and fewer women are not working, a higher and higher percentage are working even if they are single parents. And one of the biggest changes you've seen, partly from policy, but also because of social change, is women working in the labour market and not 
we don't call it unemployed. We call it not active in the labour market because it's a deliberate choice. So does this mean, Rachel, that we therefore were having to spend less money on uh, women who don't have a partner who are looking after kids and they stay at home more than going into the labour market? Well, of course, another big change is the number of lone parents that are because uh, divorce or non-marriage has also increased. So if you went back a few decades, you'd have fewer women who were single parents. But generally, we have far fewer people who are inactive because of our social expectations on them, as opposed to other reasons which will come onto, particularly women. The second big change is ageing. We are, as most listeners will be aware, like the rest of uh, the West and increasingly the rest of the world, an ageing population. So with every year, the number and percentage of the population that requires pension payments increases. But these two big changes have altered the makeup of welfare spending. Now, Rob, do you want to talk about for people who are unemployed and for people in work, which is a big part of welfare too, how policy has changed in the same period. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the crucial things to to frame this conversation is just to remember how small a fraction of our total spending does go to people who are um, able-bodied and just unemployed. Um, it's 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 a vanishingly small fraction of our overall spending. So we're starting there. We have relatively low unemployment rates, and for people who are of working age, who are non-disabled, who are unemployed, we pay them v- very little compared to the rest of um, the rest of the OECD. Um, and we've pay, pay, we're paying them less now than we were thirty years thirty years ago. We are because it's been uh, we've largely held spending. Uh, we've largely held the generosity of those benefits down over time, um, especially when the coalition came to power and subsequent Tory governments have failed to kind of uprate that spending in line with inflation, for example, but also have just generally held that spending um, down. But it, the, the crucial thing to remember really for, I think, for listeners is that 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 fraction of the bu- of the budget is very, very small. So, for example, we spend about 0.1% of our GDP on um benefits for unemployed people who are non-disabled whereas if you look at the state pension that's 5.6 percent of gdp but we spend a lot of money on people who are in work but are still getting welfare question mark yes that's correct yeah yeah so um we we do spend um we're spending increasing amounts over time on people who are in work and are having their incomes topped up um by the welfare system basically we have been spending less and have been less generous towards the unemployed and we've been spending more and have become rather more generous to people in work. And in a sense, welfare, uh, it's not so much welfare to work, it's welfare in work that now in some senses characterise the welfare that we provide for people of working age. Yeah, but yeah. If you, if you could think of it in terms of policy has largely, despite the fact that most of the rhetoric around welfare focuses on people who are non-disabled, unemployed, most of the actual policy decisions have been to support people we've we've large they've been largely neglected by any any real attempt to increase the generosity of the benefits that go to that group whereas actually what we've done really on the policy side is is increase the support for people who are in work is that a a moral choice from governments they believe work is a good thing for people is it a function of what people are naturally doing anyway what's caused this so i think there is always, there's always going to, and we'll come back to this, I think, when we start talking about attitudes a bit more, but there's there's always going to be more public, at, public appetite 
to support people who were in work but in poverty um, or unable to afford you know basic necessities than there is going to be support for people who are um, out of work um, there's there's this kind of sense that you hear it in any kind of political rhetoric it's almost reflexive now any politician will always say that they're doing some policy for hard-working British people and hard-working British people almost by default excludes people who are unemployed so there's always going to be a, a sort of basis of support that is there for people who are in work that is not necessarily there for people who are out of work so I think it's it's always a tougher political sell to say okay well we're going to make benefits for unemployed people more generous although that has changed um, over the last decade or so uh, but we'll come back to that I think when we start talking about attitudes. So if we talk because I think this is important in understanding any public policy area if there are three things that drive public policy changes one is demography who works naturally how old is society therefore what do you have to provide them the second is attitudes which sometimes derive from demography. What do people expect? What do they think is moral? What do they think is right? And then the third is the intellectual decision or the ideological decision of a given political party. I think what we are saying is that for unemployment and in-work benefits, and we'll move on to pensions in a second, a lot of it is a combination of demography, but even more attitudes driving government behavior whether they are labor or conservative yeah i mean john disagrees with this he's, well, he's we'll, shaking we'll his back, head we'll come back to that that's fine that's okay <laughs> so is that also true of pensions because you said that unemployment benefits are actually very small working benefits are substantially higher but pension benefits are the highest of all so what's been happening there yeah, so I mean, really, what's been happening is a maintenance of this is this existing policy of the triple lock, which has just allowed pension spending to to continue to rise over time. Um, and I think, really, what it's it's really a question of policy inaction rather than policy action. It's allowing this situation to continue, and that that every time someone will bring up the idea of maybe we could abandon the triple lock, especially during periods of very high inflation like we've just seen, um, where you will see pensions go up quite substantially because they're tracking inflation um and people are, i think only really now starting to get the sense that this is maybe unfair um that really in the last decade or so you have started to see people's support for increasing payment on to uh, pensioners go down rachel what is the triple lock the triple lock is a uh, policy that means that the state pension will rise by the highest of average earnings. So if on average people's earnings go up by 5% a year, that would be the value for the state pension measure. Inflation and 2.5%. So if, for example, wages went up by 5%, inflation went up by 10%, and the other measure is 2.5%, the state pension would go up by the highest of those 10%. Some numbers I've certainly got in front of me just to give some idea uh, to our listeners of just how the gap has grown. So if we go back to um, around uh, the mid-1990s, we were spending, what, just over £6,000 per pensioner um, on welfare uh, as compared with around £2,000 for those of working age. We're now spending over £10,000 per pensioner. 
whereas the figure for those of working age has only now increased a little bit above the 2000 level. So we just give some idea of the extent to which we have reorientated our spending towards pensioners at a time when, of course, there are more of them as well. So I think this is really important because if we go back to a couple of decades ago, what we're saying is that if you were unemployed uh, and looking for a job but unemployed, you would get benefits that are relatively similar today and are and were and indeed are relatively low compared to the rest of the OECD. If you were a pensioner a few decades ago, you would be very much poorer on a state pension than you are today and your income would look lower than most of the population or the average of the population. Uh, however, if a couple of decades ago you were in low pay work, you might get quite a lot less support than you get today because we're trying to make sure that work pays uh, and have done consistently across governments. But I think there are two other huge elements of welfare payments, which have also seen really big changes over the last couple of decades that alter what it means to get support if you're either unemployed or in work. And those are housing benefit, how much support you get to pay for your house, and sickness and disability benefit, whether you are judged to be able to work or not, and what support you get if you're judged not to be in work. So it'd be good to talk about each of those, but housing I think is really interesting because as Rob said, we have now this growing perception and view that uh, the baby boomer pension generation is large, well paid in their pensions and sitting on their million pound or above houses. And one of the things that of course has happened over the last couple of decades is house prices have gone up enormously. And therefore, as well as income transfers, um, the amount you get each year from the working population to pensioners, there's also been a huge change in the distribution of wealth, the assets that you have. And one of the consequences of rising house prices is if you are of working age and you are low paid or not in work, it's harder for you to be able to afford a place to live. And that has changed, I think, for the UK particularly, how much we spend in housing benefit. Rob, is that is that correct? Yeah. As a summary? A- absolutely. Um the we are we're an enormous outlier when it comes to spending on housing benefit. Um so we are by far the highest in the OECD in terms of the percentage of GDP that we spend on housing benefit. So we spend about 1.3% of our GDP um, and our nearest neighbours are down at 0.8%. Um, so that doesn't sound absolutely like a big difference, but in relative terms, it is a very big difference. So our nearest neighbours are people like places like Finland, New Zealand and France, and they spend about 0.8% and we spend 1.3%, which is a big difference. It's it We spend an enormous amount on housing benefit. And I think what's so interesting about this is even though we spend an enormous amount of housing benefit, which is a kind of unemployment and low pay benefit that we often miss in the other numbers, it's still considered too low in lots of places. It's still not enough to pay for the enormous and rising rents in a lot of places where people wish to yeah, work. Yeah, I think the fascinating thing about housing benefit is exactly as you said, Rachel, it's it, it's kind of a hidden benefit. It doesn't often get discussed with, for example, when people talk about universal credit or um prior to that JSA, uh, Job Seekers Allowance, that the generosity of that payment gets a lot of political attention, whereas housing benefit almost gets smuggled in the back door. And actually, 
I'm sometimes almost surprised that there's not more hay made by people who are quite anti-welfare about how big spending on uh, housing benefit actually is. Um, the I think part of the reason, though, that our housing benefit is so high is exactly as you said, our housing costs in this country are, are very high relative to other countries. Um, we, our private rental sector is very expensive compared to other countries. Um, but part of the reason our housing benefit is so high is because we need to compensate for our very low unemployment cash benefits. So people just wouldn't be able to survive on on the level of unemployment benefits they receive without quite a large top up. Presumably the other thing however is going on here is that we do now have more people living in private rental property. That's been quite a substantial social change. And then my question to you is um, who's getting this housing benefit? In, in particular, if, if we're paying pensioners a big pension, and given that a lot of younger people are in private rental, is, is this actually a benefit that to some degree is skewed towards the younger end of the population or not? Well, it's, it, it is to an extent, but largely who's getting it is landlords. <laughs> um that's that's where that benefit is ending up okay um so it's it's a benefit that we that we funnel through people on low pay and on um and who are unemployed that gets funneled through them into the hands of private landlords largely so we started talking about the the two most obvious and visible uh, elements of welfare spending so unemployment and low pay work spending and pension spending and then we talked about this kind of slightly hidden but big element of housing uh, benefit. The other big hidden element of welfare spending, which is occupying more and more attention in the Treasury with the people who might form the next Labour government, it's a real concern and worry, is sickness and disability benefit, and indeed the number of people who are not working because of sickness, both physical but also mental health. So, Rob, can you describe a little bit about what's happened both over the last couple of decades, but also maybe since COVID uh, on sickness and disability? Yeah. So I think one way to think about about sickness and disability benefits is is either as an add on to existing unemployment benefits. I guess I guess you could either think of okay, well, that more and more people are claiming disability benefits, and that is an add on to our existing group of people who would be unemployed, who are we would consider non-disabled. That's one way of thinking about it. But another way of thinking about it is as essentially a sort of hidden unemployment, is that our unemployment rate, as we talked about earlier, is actually relatively low, our headline unemployment rate, because that unemployment rate doesn't include people who are on sickness or incapacity benefit. But as soon as you start to add those people in, and you've seen the same trends happen in places like the US, where because our, partly because our our kind of headline unemployment benefits are quite low and how quite difficult to get the and come with a lot of conditions attached you are seeing this movement of people who maybe in other times would have claimed straightforward unemployment benefit are now claiming sickness benefit um and so you as a proportion of the pe- of people who are not working um who are of working age people on sickness benefit are, t- are becoming a larger and larger and larger fraction of that group. Um, and that's really the big trend. And I think it's worth flagging that for governments, this is a, a real headache, because not only are you spending more and more to support people who are on sickness or disability benefits, but if they're not working, you're not getting any tax revenue from them either. So if you have a 
aging population where you have more and more pensioners who aren't working and you're required to support, you have a shrinking work age population. And even of that working out age population, more and more people aren't working because of sickness. And you're seeing for the first time a real increase in the number of those people who have mental health conditions then you worry about how you're going to make the numbers add up. How are you going to pay for your health system and your education system when you don't have enough people in work, ideally in higher paid work, to pay taxes? So, Rachel, um, given what we've said across these myriad of areas, um, what, do we th- what we would, would we summarise as being the big changes or maybe even non-changes in the welfare state over the last 30 years? So I think the the huge transformations that we've talked about are, one, we spend a lot more on old people versus working age people than we used to. And that's something that both political parties have continued to commit to, partly for political reasons. Two, while the amount we spend on classic unemployment benefit has stayed low and even reduced slightly and is low comparative to other countries, we are spending more and more on people on low pay, on supporting people for very high rental costs and for people who have uh, sickness or another um, disability or incapacity that means that they can't work. And that all amounts to a big headache for the next government because the amount that they have to spend on keeping people either who aren't working at all or who are working but aren't paid sufficient amounts to live is growing ever higher and the number of people compared to the working age population is increasing every year as well. What's interesting, final point John, is in the midst of that headache they have also chosen for perfectly good and popular reasons, to extend the scope of the welfare state and pay for more and more women to work uh, by supporting their childcare costs. So we have a demographic crunch and an ever-rising bill for whoever is in government after the autumn. It just goes to prove that maybe winning the next election won't necessarily be a ball. Uh, Robert, so again, we've, we've made various references to... Um, uh, overseas comparisons. But again, if we were to summarise, you know, what are the one or two major distinctive features of UK welfare, what would you say? So major distinctive features are are very, very low, lowest in the OECD payments to unemployed working age people who are not sick or disabled. That we're, we're a big outlier on that front. We're a big outlier on what we spend on housing benefit, as, as Rachel has covered. We have a much more conditional system um, which basically means that we make our unemployed and sick and disabled claimants jump through a lot more hoops to demonstrate that they really can't work or that they are really unable to find work than other countries. Um, other countries have been moving more towards that direction, but we have been uh, a clear front runner in that move towards making it a more conditional, more kind of hoop jumping system. Um, and really, those are the big, I would say, the big differences between our the way we frame our system uh, and the way other the way other countries do. So I think if I were to put the the two of you together, it sounds as though what we're saying is we're not particularly generous, but we're not sure whether we can afford what we're already <laughs> paying for, and that perhaps in a sense is a real dilemma for for UK government. So let's take a break, and in a moment we'll talk about attitudes to welfare. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so we said we'd talk about attitudes. So we've seen some big changes in welfare policy and spending over the last 30 years. But what have the public been thinking? Well, there's certainly, as Robert's already referred to, been some shifts in the public mood. Now, here is just one example from British Social Attitudes, which I have some responsibility for, which has been tracking attitudes towards welfare for well, the last 30, 40 years. Here's just one example. Back in 1989, 61% of people said the government should spend more on welfare benefits for the poor, even if, even if it leads to higher taxes. But by 2009, that figure had dropped to just 27%. But now on the latest survey, back end of 2022, it was back up yes. to 37%. Yeah, the, so, Robert, um, have been I've just taken two a big swings in public the, uh, welfare attitudes uh, over the last kind of 30 years. So between the late kind of late 90s and through the 2000s there was a massive shift towards more anti-welfare attitudes so for example agreement that benefits were too low and cause hardship went from 70% in the early 90s down to 30% in the mid 2000s so that's this huge shift of people thinking that benefits were too low in that you know if you if you're looking in the late 90s um loads of people thought benefits were too low you're looking in the mid-2000s, very few, a very small minority thought that, that they were too low. And you see very similar shifts in people's perception of how deserving claimants are. This sounds like a rather large shift in a relatively short period of time. So how do we explain it? Well, so the, the, the explanation that's, that seems to be the most plausible is that we, see, we saw that shift largely due to changes in the perceptions of Labour voters. So Labour voters traditionally would have been quite pro-welfare. Um, they would have been quite keen on the idea that claimants were deserving and that we should spend more on welfare benefits. But with the advent of new Labour, the rhetoric around welfare changed quite substantially. And what seems to have happened is that the, the attitudes among Labour voters shifted as a consequence of that. So what's the change in rhetoric that's happening in this period? Essentially, new Labour took a much more conservative line on welfare, essentially. 
they their their rhetoric around welfare shifted to be much closer to the rhetoric of the Conservative Party. But was this not in particular because they felt that they felt that Lady Thatcher and Mrs. Thatcher's government had spent too much money on welfare without any obvious benefit, and what they were keen to do was to use the welfare system uh, to say, well, first of all, with welfare came responsibilities as well as rights but that also they were very keen to use the welfare system as a mechanism for getting people into work so that they could reduce the welfare bill and thereby spend the money on other things. Their argument was that, the, that, that Mrs. Thatcher's government had wasted money on unemployment benefit for no obvious wider social benefit. Yeah, so there's there's two ways of thinking about it, I think. The, the first way is the kind of just sort of nakedly political calculation where New Labour have to draw a bright line. The whole point of New Labour was to draw a bright line between themselves and old Labour. And one of the ways they could do that was by telling the British public, OK, well, there's a lot of these people out there who are getting welfare who don't deserve it and getting on the kind of the tapping into that latent British sense of unfairness of somebody might be getting something that they don't deserve, which is kind of quite a common attitude um, in the British public. And they saw that as a political opportunity to be able to, to distinguish themselves from old Labour and to and to and to bring them bring them forward into this this kind of new Labour future. But the other the other side of the story is exactly what you're saying, John. Part of New Labour ideology was that work is good and getting people into work is a very positive thing essentially you're not just supporting people who get who become out of work by offering them a safety net instead what you're trying to offer them is a trampoline you're trying to kind of bounce them back into work as quickly as, as you possibly can and that is good for the economy and it's good for the worker themselves and that was part of new labor ideology and that's what drove a lot of this this kind of rhetoric among new labor is this a question of the labor party responding to the existing public mood or is this a case of politicians changing attitudes towards the welfare system? It seems like the latter. Um, it seems like actually, classically, the idea of politicians is that they try and figure out what the public want and then they change their rhetoric to, to match it, right? Um, you know, what's the da- what, what are the Daily Mail saying? Let's try and make sure, you know, where are my people going so that I may lead them, you know? But it does seem in this case that actually it's the rhetoric that came first. New Labour had a, had a project and a thing that they wanted to do and they changed their their, their rhetoric and the, their voters followed them rather than the other way around. Rob, can I just um, check? Because I think there are some other theories, at least, uh, about why attitudes might change. And I'd just be interested to know why they're wrong. So the first would be that... Uh, the welfare change in rhetoric also accompanied a very explicit uh, loosening of immigration rules and that people feel less bound to those that they think might not be like them and therefore general sympathy towards welfare change. There were obviously lots of stories that grew over this period about benefits being sent home, etc. Um, another theory is that the nature of our welfare system had changed and the sorts of people who might get benefits had changed from a sort of more contributory system, which is a bit more European, where people kind of put in and then get out uh, to one which is means tested. And also from a kind of industrial led unemployment, the mine has closed, no one gets a job, to more individual led unemployment, I personally don't have a job. And, And that those combinations might have together made people feel that those who get benefits are a a bit less like them and also it's more down to their individual circumstances rather than things that are outside their control. 
So I I don't think necessarily that those are conflicting reasons so much as they are complementary to each other. I think if if those things were going on in isolation, uh, and you're you're right that both of those contributed. I think the individualization of unemployment I think actually is a very important part of the story. I think, but that that individualization was exacerbated by the way the Labour Party were talking about welfare, and I think. The key reason why we think that it's actually the rhetoric of the Labour Party and the extent to which they were seizing on these these kind of structural changes, because there's what there's one response you could have to an increasing individualization of unemployment. The idea that actually people now are becoming unemployed for their own individual reasons is to emphasize that those structural factors are still there. Right, that there's still a universal structural story for why people are becoming unemployed, even if it isn't necessarily part of this kind of deindustrialization story. You could Labour could have ident- could have could have focused on that, and they could have told a more universal, more structural story, but they didn't. They leaned into this idea of of the individualization of unemployment. Um, so I think, and the part of the reason that we think that the Labour Party is a big part of the story is because you saw a much bigger shift in attitudes among Labour supporters than you did amongst other um, party supporters. So, for example, in 1994, 63 percent of Labour identifiers, people who said they would support the Labour Party, disagreed that if welfare benefits were less generous, people would learn to stand on their own two feet. So they disagreed with that. They thought, you know, that that's wrong to say that if we if we made welfare benefits less generous, then people would be able to stand on their own two feet. By 2002, that had dropped to 25%. Um, and that you didn't see the same drop among Conservative supporters. You, you did still see a drop, but not as big. So Robert, if that's the story under New Labour, what's the story under Cameron Osborne and their successors? So Cameron Osborne is a kind of continuation of that of that kind of anti-welfare sentiment. But post-Cameron Osborne, as you start to move into austerity, not post-Cameron Osborne, but kind of the later parts of their of their um, premiership, um, of Cameron's premiership, then you start to see the reversal of that swing. So you, you start to see, for example, that this shift um, back towards a more generous perception of welfare benefit claimants and more a, a more of a sense that welfare benefits are too low, that we are more comfortable spending more on benefits, um, even if it leads to higher taxes, and a greater perception that welfare benefit claimants are um, deserving. It's not as big of a shift as the shift, the anti-welfare shift, but we've we have made a dramatic shift back in the opposite um, direction. So we're not we're not back in the heyday of Thatcherism yet. We're not quite back there, but we're. Mo- it's moved quite strongly back in that direction. So we're, da- we're down to less than 20% agreement that many people who get Social Security don't deserve help. That And that is a big shift from where it was in the mid-2000s. And how does that vary by different kinds of people? So one of the things I notice anecdotally in focus groups is that people who are on more in more working class occupations who are on slightly lower pay tend to be rhetorically much more anti-welfare than when we do focus groups with say more professional people is that reflected in the numbers and i suppose a second question when you're talking about more support for social security do you see a distinction between people who are supportive of benefits for those who are already working tax credits type support versus pure unemployment benefit versus sickness or disability benefit yeah so i mean that what you're seeing in the focus groups is definitely borne out at the when we do population level surveys people certainly are 
um, people who are from more working class backgrounds or from in more working class occupations generally are less supportive of welfare unless they have a direct experience of welfare themselves. Um, so if there's someone who's in a working class job who's experienced intermittent periods of unemployment and has had to lean on the welfare system, generally they're a bit more supportive of it because they, they, they know that they've needed it. Um, but if there's someone who is in a working class occupation and who hasn't experienced a period of unemployment, they are less supportive than someone who is in a more professional job, generally speaking. What's kind of interesting about the change since the mid-2000s, this shift towards more generous attitudes towards the welfare system, is that it's happened in parallel across all social groups. So basically, the story of the early 90s through the mid-2000s of people becoming much more anti-welfare, that was very focused on labour supporters. That change was driven by a big shift among labour supporters. Whereas this, this change towards more generous attitudes has been more universal. Everyone has become more pro-welfare over this kind of post-austerity period than um, than they were previously. Uh, it's not something where we've seen, okay, well, it's mainly Labour voters shifting back, or it's mainly Conservative voters shifting back. It's everyone has moved in the same direction, um, which is, to me, points to this idea that actually this is what um, you might call what's called a thermostatic reaction, which is that essentially... People call it thermostatic because it's like, okay, well, people have noticed that the room is too hot, so you, so you turn the heat down. People have noticed the room is too cold, so you turn the heat up. People have essentially internalized the idea that welfare benefits are very low, that people are struggling, that it's very difficult to get by on benefits, and therefore people's attitudes have become more generous. And that's true of Tory voters, it's true of Labour voters, it's true of broadsheet readers, it's true of Daily Mail readers across the board. So we're saying there have been two big shifts in attitudes since 1997. One was a move in the beginning of this period away from pro-welfare attitudes. And it's something that seems primarily at least to be accounted for by the way in which under New Labour, Labour's rhetoric and policy towards welfare was rather different. And they seem to take their supporters with them uh, in a much more anti-welfare direction. But now in the last... A decade or so, we've seen something of a move back in the opposite direction. But rather than being one that we can clearly pin down to being the result of changes in rhetoric, it's something that seems to have occurred across our society as a whole for the most part. And it's one um, that means that perhaps we have a society to some degree have been signalling that some of the reductions in welfare spending that have occurred since 2010 have perhaps gone a wee bit too far um, and that perhaps we therefore should be a bit more generous. That said, we that increased generosity perhaps is more to people who are in work, who have not done particularly well out of the system in the last decade or so, rather than pensioners who have done uh, rather well. Um, but certainly it does indicate that perhaps uh, politicians do have some room for manoeuvre in changing public attitudes. But on the other hand, if public policy moves too far from where, where the public are at, uh, then they may, may well react. Um, anyway, um, that leaves us with one key question, Robert. And sorry, short, pithy answer. How might the next government improve Britain's welfare system, given what we have said? I think for me, one of the most important things that any incoming government to do should do is peg any discussion or any policy changes around welfare to people's actual living standards. So a lot of the 
policy debate around our spending on welfare and about our welfare policy happens at this quite abstract level of percentages of GDP and so on and, and, and is quite disconnected from what do people actually need to live. Um, so if you look at, for example, uh, surveys that we conducted with the Welfare and Social Distance team, we found that more than half of the British public think that benefit levels as they currently stand are not enough for people to even meet their basic subsistence needs. Um, and I think some some way of making sure that those those discussions and any changes that we're doing are benchmarked and pegged to people's actual living standards. So we need a we need a new triple lock for unemployment. Well, not necessarily a triple lock. I don't want to get lo- I don't want to, us to get <laughs> locked into a policy that we can't ever get rid of again like the like, like the pensions triple lock, but some way of establishing a community standards potentially or they could be local standards or they could be national standards of this is what we think is enough for someone to live on and are our is our benefit system actually meeting that need for the people who are because that's fundamentally what the benefit system is for right is to make sure that people uh, it's to it's to remove want it's to make sure that people are able to survive on and meet their basic subsistence needs at least with what they're given uh, and that's not always the case as it stands. I suppose what is noticeable is that the Labour Party is promising no such thing because it is deeply concerned about some of the other big forces that we've been talking about. Namely, we have fewer and fewer people giving us tax revenue. We're spending more and more. We have high deficit and high debt. Um, But it will be very interesting to see whether this drive uh, in public attitudes continues in the next government and therefore whether it at least starts changing how they distribute spending. Rob, thank you so much for joining. Uh, I've learned a lot. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be doing more public policy in future weeks. But that's it from Trendy Phil this week. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. We'll be back next week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart. A better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.